Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Welcome to Independence Day. Happy holidays and peace on earth, today and every day. My name is Joe Armstrong, and you are listening to the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Brad Peterson. The word maverick gets thrown around a lot. Politicians, cowboys, designers, and others have all been labeled as such when a soul sets itself apart from the mean in order to find out what is truly possible. Singer-songwriter Brad Peterson exemplifies the ethos of the independent, intrepid musician better than almost anyone. Growing up in New Jersey and suburban Chicago, Peterson was experimenting with recording his own original songs as soon as he figured out how to work his tabletop cassette recorder before he was even 10 years old. Throughout the late 80s and 90s, he evolved through a series of stylistic shifts, from frenetic new wave pop to blue-eyed soul and a kind of nostalgic and organic folky rock, with his powerful and emotive voice establishing an anchor to hold it all together. Over time, his songs got better, and he played in a number of bands with increasingly larger spheres of influence. Stages got bigger, as did the crowds in front of them, and Peterson eventually rubbed elbows with some of his heroes, Bono, Jeff Buckley, Suffin Stevens, Edie Brickell, and others. But as the internet eroded the foundations of the music business in the new millennium, Peterson found it nearly impossible to make a living in music. He had long been recording and releasing albums on his own, using the rapidly expanding capabilities of recording software, and he had an epiphany. Technology could allow him to continue to turn out incredibly inventive music without being beholden to the traditional model of the music business. By giving away his music, he found himself free as well. After releasing several albums of original material produced completely on his own, Peterson's style has settled into a catchy and inventive mixture of the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and bits of any and everything else that inspires him. His brand new EP, Fleur de Lis, finds Peterson's voice, style, and songs as maverick as ever. Welcome to Independence Day, Brad Peterson. Hello, old friend. Hello. How are you, man? Medium. Medium? <laughs> Not large? Uh, that's sort of my stock answer, because I figure... I'd, I'm not exaggerating, and I'm pretty much always medium. I'm not lying. Yeah, people can take it how they want it. Man, it's really good to see you. It's really good to see you. You're kind of like a comet friend who rolls way out of the solar system <laughs> of my life, and then you come kind of screaming back towards the sun, and you're like very bright in the sky for a while, but I hope you don't go away again, because like you're new to California. This is a new thing. Like, How long have you been on the ground here? I think about five weeks, and I already have a driver's license here, so... So you're legit. I'm I'm legit. I'm legal. I mean, uh, and as much as you will ever be legal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I once, um, well, when I was taking my driving test when I first got my license when I was 16 or 17. You know, you go out on the road and they they tell you to do certain maneuvers, parallel park. The, a woman, the woman who was. Uh, you know, riding with me and taking notes, said something that has echoed through my brain and changed my life forever. This, I mean, do you remember the person? Inspiration comes from the strangest places. Do you remember the the person, man or woman, who rode with you when you got your oh, yeah. driver's license? Yeah. You do? Well, this woman changed my life. I was being very robot, robotic and mechanical and trying to pay attention not to cross over a lane and you know just being very herky-jerky and you know she says take a left turn up here and and it was 
a single lane that kind of opened up into a left turn lane. But I waited until that lane actually, you know, the double yellow stripes w went off at an angle and that lane opened to actually go into the lane. And she puts her hand on me and she says, honey, it's okay if you cross the lines a little. And it was like, honey, it's okay if you cross the lines a little. It's okay if you cross the lines a little. It's okay. And it just, I was like. The camera pans back from the car. It's okay if you cross the lines a little. Yeah. I've now applied that to every aspect of my life. You know, and it's, it's funny you should say that because one of the first things I wanted to ask you about or at least mention about you are people who don't know you very well. Um, you know, people throw terms like maverick and intrepid around a little bit, but I was trying to think of a word to describe you as a human and also your musical career because they're kind of one and the same in a lot of regards. You're like the most intrepid guy I know. And whether it's an act or whether it's legit as far as being fearless or the way you approach your life doesn't matter because you were a guy... Uh, you know, full disclosure for everyone, you know, Brad and I kind of grew up together a little bit, not when we were kids. We met, you know, college age, young, late high school, early college age. And we used to play together in a band called Greensleeves or The Greensleeves back in suburban Chicago, back in the, I guess that would be the, not the Reagan administration, it would be the first Bush administration, I think. And watching you go about what you did then is the same way what you go about doing what you do now. And it was always completely to the, your own drummer and completely, to, you know, you marched to the beat of your own drummer, you did your own thing, and you were kind of fearless about it. And is that something, you were always that way since you were a kid? You know, when you talk to your mother, she's like, well, you're always off doing these kinds of things, or is this something that you can draw a direct line to one of your ancestors and say, I'm like that guy? Or was there someone in popular culture that you kind of gleaned this from? Like, what was it about you? Where did that come from, this, like, spirit of yours? Or is it even explicable in any way? Well... I don't want to get Skinnerian or, uh, you know, the whole nature versus nurture thing. But the truth is I come from a long line of, I think people I respect. I mean, my father and my brothers, my, my mother, my entire family, I think you're describing them. And I think that's almost a compliment because that's what you just said is how I would describe them. Okay. And I think it's sort of unconscious on my part. And, um, you know, I think there's incredible... Um, I think you can relate to this. When you have limitations, whether it be financial limitations or equipment or um, time limitations or self-imposed limitations, like writing songs, for example, I want it to be about this, but I never want to mention this. Like I have right. these little homework assignments. I think when these limitations kind of force you to be bold, you know, you use what you have at arm's reach to yeah. make what you need. And I think it's just more a, a result. What you, I mean, this, I don't know. I never thought of myself as a maverick so much. I just know what I like. I know what I like that has been done by other people and I incorporate it in what I yeah. do. So I guess, you know, nothing's really been, nothing is original. And I mean, obviously I have my own, you know, spin on things, but that's, I think, a result of my limitations, really. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, people say if you wait until you've got enough or you wait until you're ready to do any given thing, you'll never do it. Because, you know, 
obviously, even like think of something like the Apollo program going to the moon, right? Those things were tested and tested and subtested and retested and tested again. But they still had weird things where they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Like that. there's that whole weird story about Apollo 12 when it got hit by lightning as it was ascending off the launch pad, like a 32 seconds into the flight. And every, li- every light in the command modules panel came on, every single light. You know, and, the, and basically it knocked out the power units of this thing as they're ascending to the moon. They're like Mach <laughs> 2 going into, oh, into orbit. And some obscure kid, like a 24-year-old kid who was in charge of one particular function, said, oh, yeah, switch this one switch to AUGS. And they relayed it to the capsule. And the astronauts had no idea. Like, what are you talking about? What switch is this? You know, they've been training and training and training. And they somehow it reset the CPU, or not the CPU, but the power units. And then everything was fine from there. And then it's like, well, do we go on to the moon? The whole capsule power was knocked out. And I guess, I mean, I'm not drawing a direct comparison to your musical career and going to the moon. But there's a certain spirit of, I don't know, whatever it is that you do, that you, that you have, that you've always had this, that I've always found fascinating. And you apply it to music and you apply it to other things too. You showed up last week with your motorcycle, <laughs> you know, explaining six different ways that you had fixed this thing. This thing is almost as old as we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. Some people would say it's BSing your way through life. Some people would say it's improvising. But whatever it is, you do it very, very well. And I guess that's the point of this. Is this show is called Independence Day. And as much as anyone I've ever interviewed, you represent the, the spirit of being independent probably as much, if not more, than everybody else has been on this show. So kudos to you, man. And I hope that people check out your music. People have been checking it out for a long time. And you've got new stuff coming up. We're going to talk about that. First, I want to play a little bit of something that you recorded a little while ago. This is from something you call the Red Album. We'll use quotes, like you said, because all your albums are kind of in a Peter Gabriel-esque way, not named. Yeah, exactly. they nickname them. They kind of nickname the Red Album, like the White Album or Zep 4. Zeppelin 4 doesn't have a name. So, and this is the track I beat myself. I beat myself. I beat myself up. This is the track <laughs> I beat myself up. Brad Peterson, on Independence Day. So hard, heavy on my heart I 
Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day. We come to you just about every Wednesday night, 7 o'clock Pacific Time, Pacific Standard Time these days. Happy Christmas or whatever uh, whatever uh, holiday you celebrate this time of year or don't celebrate. Either way, good glad tidings to you and yours. Uh, my guest tonight, Mr. Brad Peterson. He is an old friend of mine, but he is one of the best musicians I know, best songwriters I know, and one of the most intrepid souls I've ever met. Brad, thank you for coming in, taking the time during the busy holiday season. Gosh, thanks. I appreciate that. It's, it's good to see you, man. Good to see you. So that was a track from the Red album. But one thing I want to talk about right away is the fact that you were kind of independent before independent was independent. Like it became a thing at one point. Giving away music for free, for example. Recording albums at home completely, for example. These are things that you were kind of ahead of the curve on these. Because when you and I first met, it was the old paradigm of music. Talk to me about like what it was like before you started doing things on your own, like recording, or was it always from the beginning that you were doing stuff on your own? I think uh, I started started with a, one of those oversized cassette deck mm. recorders, you know, the big ones where you had to hold record and play at the same time, yeah, yeah. and you heard a big clunk, and you heard the motor running the whole time. And I think I started narrating stories and singing songs with my brother Ted. How old were you at this point? I think I got that when I was six, and I also um, was it like a reel to reel type thing. Or no, was, oh, I know, I know what you're talking like yeah. a tabletop thing. Yeah, yeah I know it was, what a, you're it was about. a realistic. Yeah, and had I, like one speaker and a little handle that slid out, sort of. I think there was a slider. I think it, this one might have had you know big oversized knobs on it, but and I would record the monkeys TV shows on it and listen back later. But I also had a record player that was given to me for my sixth birthday. It was a Panasonic, and I used to put it in my wagon and put my LPs. My first three LPs were all Monkees records um, that I inherited from my big brother, Mark, who probably got too cool for it. He was into the doors and things like that. So I loved it, and I would like try to play my LPs on this battery-powered Panasonic turntable and pull it in my wagon but every time i hit a crack or a bump yeah, <laughs> with yeah. the record would skip but um i can't even remember what the question was but um doing it my own way i suppose not knowing any better yeah not knowing any better and i i touched on it earlier limitations um like if i wanted to have a recording how would i do it so you know, it was that early cassette recorder is probably the first thing. And then later on, when I actually learned how to play instruments and started writing songs, I suppose it was just an extension of, well, what do I have here? Yeah. I have a, a, a tape deck and I have a couple of microphones. How do I record two things at the same time? Oh, let's go to Radio Shack and buy a splitter. Oh, let's record four things. Let's buy, let's buy, Three splitters. Yeah, yeah. Now and a splitter into a splitter into a splitter. And then we noticed that if Ted and I would, he would your brother Ted. Yeah, my brother Ted. He would um, hook up his guitar, and I, somehow the resistor and the potentiometer of an electric guitar act as they dial. I, th I think it's because there's a little resistor and a cap in there dials back the volumes of everything. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Yeah, yeah. And so, and we'd do stuff like, all right, we need you to be five feet further away so you're quieter yeah and then just messing around with that and then getting a little more advanced as we could afford better equipment 
but it you know like i said is always some sort of limitation or accident sometimes yeah like the half inch tsr eights that oh i loved those things yeah it's a reel-to-reel eight track tape recorder that was at the time i want to say they were like two grand maybe i borrowed 2500 i would always borrow like you know figure out somebody to borrow it from the tape was expensive too yeah and then there was the four the 499 was the high biased one but i figured out by by accident they um those later they had the 38 which was the ones without dbx mm-hmm. and then the later ones am i getting too technical no you're fine okay but they i figured out if you hit tape super hot with the dbx that's a recording level really loud for those of people who are not recording engineers you just you record very loud level essentially right right um it's it starts to clip it starts to distort distort but something with the algorithm for that dbx if you really recorded loudly and played back without the dbx there was some really interesting compression that occurred and we didn't have compressors then and i didn't even know why i liked the way it sounded i later figured it out oh compressors yeah or volume amp limiting amplifiers limiters and i learned oh that's how it sounds good you know let's put compressors on everything now yeah I remember you had this one little compressor. It was a DBX, I think, yep. and it had the slider. It had no other control other than more or less. There's two controls. Um, one was one of those knobs that you have to turn with your thumb. Oh yeah, yeah. And like I think that was just pot. some kind of a, a t- you know, it would some kind of a level. Yeah. And it was more or less. And I remember, I remember Ted's bass always had a very unique sound with the. Uh, <laughs> with the compressor on it, <laughs> dink, dink, dink. Yeah, it was the DBX. Dink, dink, I, I don't know. Dink. It was like a half rack unit, yeah. and it had more compression, less compression. Yeah, you don't get more simple than that. Uh, good stuff, man. So then, you know, you're you're playing in bands in high school, and you're you're like, what was it that made you want to write music, or like, what album did you listen to that, or made you decide that you could do it on your own, that you could, you know, there's this point where some people are just listeners of music. Like, they grow up, they love music. And I, I have some friends who they love music as much as anybody in the world, but they've never really picked up an instrument. Like, for you, what was it that flipped that switch, that made it, I'm not just a listener, I'm going to, I'm going to create it on my own? Huh. Well, I never thought I'd be talking about the monkeys so much. But honestly, Ted and I, and our, uh, a friend of ours, John Lookout, God rest his soul. Um, every day we'd watch the monkeys at 11 a.m. in the summer, of course, uh, 11 a.m. And we taped the show with our t- little cassette recorder and watch it. And then we'd go to the swimming, you know, go swimming at the p- public pool and then come home for dinner and then listen back to that monkeys episode. And for me, when I would watch the monkeys, you know, being naive and not really understanding, I was like, I thought I didn't understand the whole concept of a manufactured band. I thought this is about, this is how they really live. They lived in a beach house and they lived, and this is what their life was like. And I I want that. I want to live in a house with my three bandmates and I want to write songs and I want to play songs like this. And before we even learn thought about learning how to play an instrument and writing songs we were coming up with band names oh yeah yeah definitely let's 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 form a band okay 
and learning actually how to write or it, it was sort of an afterthought. And so, okay, first we need a band name. Yeah, okay. And I think I came up with the name Crown Royal <laughs> because I was just looking at, you know, a Crown Royal, blue yeah. Crown Royal bag that I kept my marbles in. Right, right. And then we need a song. Okay. So I just thought for a few minutes and jotted down some words and came up with this idea called What If. It was the song called What If. And I was in, you know, how old are you in third grade? I don't know, nine? Eight. I was eight. Eight or nine? So when I was like eight or nine, oh, no, maybe it was a little bit, maybe 10. It doesn't matter. It might have been fourth grade. And I came up with What If... And it was all about what would happen if the planet just disappeared, <laughs> you know? And we were floating around in space and it was just very childish, but that was the first you thing. You were we a child. Up. Yeah. <laughs> it would make sense. You were yeah. writing things of that. So were you, then did you have instruments around? Were you playing things? Was just kind of like. No, I didn't. Well, my big brother had an electric guitar that was in disrepair. I may have had one string on it. And I'd always look at it. What do I have to do to make that work? You know, because it was like many things in our garage, in our basements, there were things that were cool that didn't work. And I didn't know what an amplifier was. I was like, how do you make that work? And I looked at it for years and years. And I think I found like a Montgomery Ward. And it was Ted and John Luckout, the guy I mentioned, um, who started playing guitar first. And I was like, I need to do this. And John played electric guitar, and Ted was learning electric guitar. He had that cream Strat. Yeah. And I was like, I need something. And so I found a Montgomery Ward acoustic that was just, I think I found strings or I, cables. I might have even made my own strings out of telephone wire. And I remember sanding it down and putting, it sounded horrible. But I knew how to tune it. And the and the strings were so high, like telephone cables off yeah. the the neck, that it was just like such a workout to form a chord. And my mother saw how hard I struggled and saw me like initiative. Yeah, she, she saw, saw so much initiative that I'd be coming home from school and working on that guitar, trying to make it sound better and trying to learn how to play, make a sound out of it. That on my 15th birthday, she said, let's go get you a guitar. And a she bought mom. me my first real guitar. Hats off to Bert. Yeah. Is that the same Yamaha that you have now? Yeah. Man, that guitar goes back a long way. Yeah. That's a great guitar, too. 30, it's 30 years old. Because that's the thing. There are strange... This is a short aside, but there are strange certain guitars or products out there. PV made a mic preamp like this once where like a company kind of overachieves <laughs> and makes something that by all rights they shouldn't it shouldn't be as good as it is. And you know, and it's maybe it's some of that's kitsch, but some of it's just actual quality. Like they'll just make some product. Maybe every product's like that. I don't know, cars, I don't know. But like guitars, that specific Yamaha guitar and then that PV mic pre and then some other stuff where they just knocked it out of the park and they're very valuable. Like that guitar is a fantastic guitar to this very day. And I don't think it was a super expensive guitar. Mm. Just kind of a you know, middle of the road kind of probably better than a starter, but not as well. The good thing as is, the, fancy. the prices of instruments have come down because yeah, the market China. is so saturated, and with you know purchasing online, yeah, all the different options one has, it's so saturated that that probably cost two hundred and fifty dollars then, and you could probably. 
buy the same thing for $150 now. Yeah, or maybe even less. Anyway, man, this is so much, it's so much fun talking to you about these things, like the good old days. We're both very nostalgic lads. And I want to talk a little bit about nostalgia when we come back, because it looms very large in your songs. But first, I want to, speaking of nostalgia, the first song I want you to play is a song called 45. It's a relatively new song for you, and it hasn't been released yet, but it's coming out on an EP. Why don't you tell us about this EP first, then play the tune. Well, um, one of the reasons I moved out here um, to California is uh, a friend of mine, Peter Bowers, and um, I have you know, a long relationship with him initially through music and love of music. And professionally, we've worked together on several projects. He managed a band of mine um, in the 90s called Pete Moss. But he's come, um, he's involved, he's got his, he's got so many irons in the fire, but one of them is a sort of a, what he calls a visual label. And, you know, there's no, the, the, whole, the paradigm of what a record company used to be no longer exists really you know there there's artists out there that record themselves with their phones and post it on youtube and you know some of those these artists and i'm fans of some of these people where i subscribe to their youtube channel and i can't wait for the next thing that they upload but it's not the same as when we were younger and we'd wait for our favorite band to put out an album and we go and buy it it's so much more modular, probably more similar to what, what it was in the mid-century when people would buy their 45s. So I accidentally brought it back to your question. 45, I received... Um, oh, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but back to Just 45. Keep going. You'll find it. Back to 45. Um, it's a song I wrote over the summer when I, I had a, a, a message that was left on my birthday from uh, my drummer and longtime friend Larry Beers. He's such a, a perpetual source of inspiration and has such fun, we call it phonetics. He has such he he has expert use of malaprops and linguistics and he just has a fun very Ringo, if you think about it. The way he phrases things and the way he just um can like I say, his malapropisms are so fun. He left me a, a, a birthday message on the phone, and he said, "Happy birthday, buddy!" Something like that. And um, let's see, you're 45, like the record with the big hole in it. Spin it quick and drop the needle, brother. And I was like, "What a great message!" And I, yeah, within 20 minutes, the song was written. All right. And then, um, and I just said oh, i'm gonna document it so i set up a couple of mics and just did an acoustic guitar and a, a vocal track and my intention was to send it to my brother to play bass on it to john piricello to play guitar and pedal steel and to larry to play drums but um after i had everything set up and i was like well I want them to understand that I kind of want it to have this feel. So why don't I, instead of a click track, why don't I just program a quick drum part? And then I'm like, well, actually, let me spend a little more time on the drum part because I have some ideas. So I, I started, next thing you know, it, I'm pulling out percussion, pulling out trumpets, bass, playing keyboards I, I basically everything i had at my disposal you kind of lenny kravitz did a little bit 36 tracks 
36 tracks. Yeah, I had 36, and that's not even including like bounced tracks to, because I like to edit during the process. I'm like, okay, I don't need to have this the snare available right in the kick separate. Let me just bounce it to two so I still can... I don't have to think about each individual thing. I, you know, I just, again, it was supposed to be a demo for them. And then when it's done, I was like, oh, well, maybe it's done. Yeah. I still don't know, really, but yeah, I'm going to well, release it. That's the beautiful thing of, of music as the living art form is that, you know, you can record something in an archive or uh, that's kind of this song in this point in time at this place. But music as a living performance thing, it's not like a painting. Like you finish a painting and there it is. And I guess some avant-garde painters <laughs> might keep adding stuff to it but you generally it's done and then you hang it in a museum hopefully or you sell it or whatever but we as musicians they they have a life unto themselves they keep going through time as you perform them in different ways change keys change change time signatures um and like to your point doing it in a recording that way too you can re-record it do it again however you want anyway let's hear the stripped down version of this this is brad peterson independence day with the track 45 Two minutes and fifty seconds Hear the turn of a tale of the way I reckon Spin it quick and let it drop Feel it quick and hear it pop
old friend, Brad Peterson. You can visit him on the web at bradpeterson.com, and that's S-O-N. Also, facebook.com slash bplabs, instagram.com slash bplabs, and youtube.com slash bplabs, where you've got some really interesting things going on there, not just music videos. Um, it's a really kind of a repository of random stuff. And the <laughs> creative videos, like you'll just set up a sheet and set up a mic and record a Beatles song on a ukulele, or you'll do some weird video about ants that you kind of like, <laughs> was written out. Um, and you put all kinds of random stuff on there, man. Like that's the thing. One of the things that's been really interesting to me is watch how you've evolved as an artist, you know, cause at the time that you and I were slogging it around, like riding Chicago in vans to play shows or wherever in, in the winter time in suburban Chicago or playing backyard parties or whatever we were doing. Um, it was like, we were band members. The idea of like making a video on your phone, the fact that a mobile phone would even exist wasn't a thing. You know, they had like bag phones or like those World War II phones that you would wind up, you know. We had CBs. Yeah, we had CB radios. So <laughs> like it's been interesting watching. Talk to me about, I don't know, is this stuff just an evolution of your intrepid nature and your creative soul or like, because you got really into computers. At one point we were just recording, like we would go to the Chicago to record on a, in a, an actual studio and like pay money to do it the old fashioned way. Right. And then everything changed. You know, did you just dive headlong into doing all these things the new way or... I don't know. How did this happen? Well, I um, I took apart a friend's computer and I broke it. And then I was obsessed with at least getting it back to a working order. And I sort of log cabined trying to fix it. And then once I fixed it, I was like, well, let me mess around. I guess the new way you're referring to is the, the whole desktop revolution of yeah. recording in your house well then i found out you could record with a computer and then i was okay how do you do that and i started reading and reading you know i i suppose i have a little bit of an autodidact tendency and there wasn't a whole lot of information i mean you you right now if you wanted to learn how to do it there's a billion youtube tutorials on how to do it people then, have garage band on the multi-track recorders on their phones right but back then we had um news groups and i would log into news groups and read and ask questions and i remember i i, I don't remember how i found it it was in a news group somebody was selling a sound card and it was an isa sound card 18-bit and wow well it was an 18-bit converter but I said, I believe a 16-bit. That's another thing. Anyway, I found this guy. He was selling this sound card. And um, so I bought it from him. It was like 250 bucks, which was a lot of money then for me. And um, and I kept asking him questions, you know, in the news group or, or personal emails maybe. Like, how do you do this? How do you do this? What software should I get? Should I try Cubase or Cakewalk? Uh, Logic Audio by the back then was PC based as well, right. and I messed around with all of it. Steinberg, you know, I had all these sequencers, and I just was it was overwhelming. But months and months of reading and talking to this guy who sold me this card, and he goes, "Hey man, by the way, I have like cracks of all that software. Why don't I send you a disc?" And he sent me a disc with everything. But you know what it was? It was me trying out all the all the programs. It was a 
it wasn't like limitate the, the limitations were taken off of it so i get to actually try out this different software and by the way burners were so expensive i had a scuzzy burner and it was like yeah yeah 900 yeah. and it took i had to set up irqs to make it work right and i was the first person i knew that had a burner uh, the only other burner i had access to was at monster disc in chicago which i had to pay to have mastering done and i would i was fascinated by that too it was like you're using a computer to do this to put out a cd i can do this long story short i kind of like found the programs i liked the most which was back then it was cakewalk and is now called sonar and the it was a steep learning curve but i got better and better and i just experimented and I guess it was just like, what was what did I want the result to be? I want to be able to share my music. Yeah. And back then, it wasn't the internet so much, but it was de- CDs. You know, that's that was the end product. So how do I get that? And how can I do it myself without having to have to pay a bunch of money to go into the studio and a m- bunch of money to have it mastered and a bunch of money to have it pressed and packaged? It was a very different time. I don't mean to interrupt you there, but like it was a much more elaborate proposition to make an album, you know, not so long ago. It took to do what you can do on your phone now, took hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to multi track effectively, you know, at one point. I mean, we had, you know, by the time you and I were in high school, we had cassette recorders that could do four or eight tracks, reel to reel recorders. They were available to us with the right amount of funding to do maybe eight or 16 tracks at home. But then to even get all those tracks, that's not a mixer. That's not microphones and cords and cables. Things have changed so drastically and they've changed so drastically so fast. And I guess that's why your evolution as a writer and a a producer and recording engineer is fascinating to me because you really surf through that wave. You know, you didn't come after it. You didn't, you were doing it beforehand, but you evolved right along with it very rapidly it seems like to me because you've done several albums now in this regard essentially completely at home like when was the last time you went to a studio to do a track what do you think um 93 oh mid 90s at some point yeah it was pete moss right that's where you were working was that with uh doug at gravity were you working at gravity at that point i lived at gravity I helped We're talking about Doug McBride, who's yeah. like a, a Chicago uh, studio owner legend. Hey, Doug. I'd love to see Doug. He's a Facebook fan, but I never see Doug anymore. Yeah, pretty much Facebook is... Uh, I think I left him a silly voicemail message a few months ago. I, he just popped in my head, and I tried to call him. And I... It also is like... <laughs> we, we leave voicemail messages. I mean, right. the kids today, they... Unless you text it, I'm not going to listen. Yeah, yeah. But um, I don't, I don't really talk to Doug, and it's uh, a so, whole lot these days. But um, you know, I lived there for a while, and I, that was a really great experience. And that was when I was getting into building studios too, and you know, studying acoustics, and and I built several uh, with varying levels of budget. Yeah, you know, again, it's this whole: what do you have available? What can what? Make the best of what you have. But, um, that, yeah, that's the last time I was in the studio. Uh, and that was Pete Moss. And yeah. we actually did get some assistance by from an indie label back then. Yeah. But things have changed, man. Like the labels, uh, it was always kind of a bad deal. It was kind of like a, 
a bank with really bad terms on a loan, it seems like. Right. You know, there's lots of great books we can read about that, uh, especially like Jake Slichter's book. He was the drummer for Semisonic and kind of rode that whole wave of closing time, that really big single that sold a trillion copies. And, and you know, the experience of kind of going through that, selling a bunch of records, how the label treated them, what was recoupable, what was not, and then kind of the aftermath of that and what it's like to kind of be forgotten by your label. Um, so it's, it's, there's a lot of, you know, sob stories or a lot of stories of bands that have kind of gotten the shaft through that. But, uh, you know, to tie you back into it, man, you never stopped doing it. Just because you weren't in a studio doesn't mean you weren't making your, your output. You're not super prolific, but you've kept up all along the way making records. Um, and I want to, let's play another song. This is from your, uh, from the, the Clear album. I think this track is called So Long. Um, tell me just, a, you know, where were you at the point when that record came out? Like, where were you studio, like, career-wise? Where were you recording-wise? That song was recorded on an 8-track um, half-inch eight-track Tascam, and I set it up in my girlfriend's parents' basement. <laughs> I think her parents were out of town, and she had the place to herself. Did they for a week. know that you were recording that? Yeah, the we had okay. their permission. Okay, and uh, yeah, I think they were supportive of the idea. And but you know, it's cables running from the kitchen down to the basement, and for rock and rollers hanging out you know probably it was good that they weren't there it afforded us to work till three in the morning right. or five in the morning or all night sometimes yeah don't know what time it is in a basement with no so you light. were still analog at that point <clears throat> that that's particular so that was the crossover that clear album was half analog half that aforementioned um i said sound card two yeah, tracks yeah. that had to, I have to <clears throat> use adapters to go into an eighth inch jack which is what the kids are doing now too yeah so and i think um yeah you can start i was started messing with looping then okay and messing with like wow you all these plugins you have you can do compression in the plugin you mean i can have unlimited tracks with unlimited effects and I kind of went crazy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I went crazy for a while, and I had to dial yeah. it back. Well, that's, let's, let's talk a little bit about that when we come back. I want you to play this song first. This is the song, So Long. Great song, man. I encourage people. The thing about you, the, the main thing I want to talk about when we come back is you giving away music, because you were kind of ahead of the curve on that. But let's, let's leave that for after the song. This is Brad Peterson, my old friend, excellent musician, excellent songwriter, excellent singer. Check him out at bradpeterson.com. This is his song, So Long. Let there be a feast for all my friends Let them eat cake For the drink will spare no expense For goodness sake The merry will make Cause it won't be long to the dawn and the end of the The song be heard for miles around 
what a sound heard by everyone and may the tears be of the joyous kind may we find it whimsical cause it won't be long till the dawn and the clutch cause I sleep too much though hard it is to shake away my dream and leave my bed with this aching head cause it won't be long till the dawn and the end of the fun So long, thank you everyone So long, everyone So long, everyone My name is Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day, and I am honored that you are doing so. Happy holidays to you and yours. My guest tonight, Brad Peterson. Learn about him at bradpeterson.com. Also visit his YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Labs. Also, please drop by the Independence Day site. That's indepday.com, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y. Lots of artists on there. We are in our fourth or fifth year. I'm starting to lose track. Over 120 artists on there. Lots of stuff to check out. Proud to know each and every one of them. Like I said, my guest tonight, my old friend, Brad Peterson, excellent singer-songwriter. The band Radiohead made a lot of waves when their record In Rainbows came out because they did something at the time which was revolutionary. They gave away the music for whatever you wanted to pay for it. But uh, in a way, you were ahead of that curve too because I remember thinking you were insane at the time (laughs) because we were all making records. We're all trying to get the attention of labels, whatever that means, trying to get some money, not to have limo rides, but to just to be able to do it and keep doing it. And you at that point had what I think was like a sea change. I remember this conversation with you. You said, I'm going to remove making money as a uh, restriction on my music. I'm just going to make my music to make my music, and I'm going to give it away to everybody. And I remember thinking, you're out of your mind. Like, where did this idea come from? You were ahead of the Radiohead curve, ahead of that whole thing. Like, even ahead of Napster, it seems like. Or was it about the same time? I don't remember. I don't remember. So what, where did that idea come from? Because you called it GTU. 
yeah, at the time. Gift to the universe. That's and right. You had a whole thing. I wrote like, a. You I wrote, wrote like a, a contract with. It was a manifesto. Of it sorts. was like a manifesto. <laughs> so talk to me about that. Well, I have to say that it was around that time that I no longer wanted to rely on music for my income. You know, I was making a pittance. Because the thing is, it can, that can really suck, you know, and it can have effects on your health. It did. And, um, you know, and my mental health for sure. And I found out, you know, I was good at other things and could make a, in a month at those other things, you know, what I can more technology based, I could make a, a, a technology based career and make in one month what I took to make it, it, it would take a year to make that much money or as, more as a touring artist. Like, yeah. yeah. And so I basically didn't need to tour anymore necessarily or worry about, you know, getting paid for gigs and merchandise and all that. So what do I really, why did I start doing music is because I wanted to share it. And so I now had a source of income. So now my music was purely for what it was. It was to share, to share it with people. So yeah, I wrote this <laughs> manifesto of sorts. It was actually a, a license, like kind of based on the GNU, a general something license, user license, GLU, general, I don't know. So I said, hey, copy this as many times as you want and give it to as many people. Please make high quality copies though. Yeah. I don't want, you know, make full digital. And when I had the ability to post it somewhere for downloads, share this link with as many people as you yeah. can. And, um, you know, really, I'm happy if somebody heard it and liked it. Yeah. Because that's there, there are two approaches to that. Like, we would all, you know, we all got into this to, like, they say, watching the monkeys in their beach house. Like, <laughs> you know, it was the same thing for me. Like, I wanted to live with my buddies and ride around in tour buses. And we used to like come up with these elaborate scenarios of like crazy stuff we would get into. Like we wanted to make giant lava lamps that were like 20 feet tall and have those on stage. Has anybody done it? And I don't know. And we, I, I doubt it. And then we wanted to have, we wanted, you know, we, of course we had seen Spinal Tap by that point, except we wanted to burst out of giant Twinkies. So we had that idea. And then we, for some reason, there was a koala bear. Like we had decided we were going to tour in Australia and there's going to be a koala bear on the tour bus. I have no idea what that's relevant to, if, if anything at all. <laughs> But like we all got into these to do these, but then when it comes down to it, it, really what we got into was to make the music, and that's to your point. You know, that's what we wanted to do, and that's what we still do as musicians. And whether you're paid for it or not, that's why we did it. And all this other stuff I learned along the way, not to the extent that you did, but I learned to make websites and like do graphic design for posters and art. I learned to <laughs> hassle booking people. I learned to, I don't know, all the different things I learned to do. You know, record was an extension of wanting to make my own music, the actual engineering aspect of it itself, the physics of music, the physics of recording music. All these things are an extension of just wanting to play songs, you know, and then you strip all that other stuff away, and I guess that's still what I like to do best, is sit around a campfire, sit in a living room, play music with people. It's like my favorite thing ever. Anyway, I'm rambling. This is about you, not me. So you, you're at this point where, you're giving away your music. I mean, did other people say, try, like, anybody try to talk you out of it? Or was this, because it seems like at the time, that like then, it was a crazy thing to do. Was everybody on board with this? Your friends on board with it? And how did people react to that when you said, give away my music, copy it? It was mixed. I, I got a, 
um, you know, people who, again, were restricted by their paradigms and the music business thought it was a crazy idea and tried to, you need to find a way to make money doing this. And I would just listen politely. But I've had, I had um, also people that encouraged it, thought that it was a genius idea. And I'm not even 100% sure I came up with the idea because, like I said, I don't think anything's original. You know, I don't, we could go into the whole thing about do I really write songs? Because I, f- I feel like they're, they fall on me. I mean, I didn't invent t- the 12 note scale. Yeah. And we all have the same 12 notes and the same handful of time right. signatures that I we mean, use, and they're all three minutes long. We all speak the same 26 letters. Right. Um, I guess uh, I did learn something interesting, if I could share this. I, I, just observing, I mean, I'm not necessarily all into the marketing side and the psychology and the neuro-linguistic programming that goes into marketing products. But I did learn something interesting, and this is what I'm going to share with you. There is that I've to how at least I've noticed when you offer something for free there is a perceived value of free oh you're giving this away for free oh it must not be worth much right so i wonder what the reaction would be is i'm going to sell these albums for $100 or just something ridiculous amount I wonder what the perceived value of that. Oh, and I'm only going to release 10 of them. You know, obviously I wouldn't do that because I told you what I wanted is ultimately somebody to enjoy it. But I'm just, it's just curious to me is if you give something to somebody, sometimes the perceived value, it's valueless. Right. You, you, well, I had uh, a .com job at one point, and the CEO gave a speech to the entire person, the entire staff of this company back in the 90s when it was the .com boom times. And he said essentially the same thing. He's like, look, we can give our product away, but then it has no value. If we, people were, will perceive it as such, as not having value, if it's free, but what else do you get for free? Advice? Um, boot to the head? Uh, I don't know. Even air and water seems like it's not free anymore, right? And at the time, I remember thinking kind of the same thing. Is we, again, we we're all trying to monetize our art, which seems like it's it's butting heads. It's something that you know we didn't want to ever think about. Um, but I thought long and hard about that, and I don't know. I still don't have an answer. Here we are at a point where here here's a here's a case study or a case in point. I have a friend who works in the movie uh, movie business. Uh, he's a stuntman, and. You know, the movie business is the last business to be affected by the digital sharing thing because it's big and entrenched. It's been around a long time. Music was easy to wipe away. It's just music. Ones and zeros, gone. And granted, yes, video is ones and zeros too, but they've done a better job. Uh, visual media, multimedia, of, of keeping that corralled. And at one point I talked to him about, well, I can, you know, I can give you a copy of that DVD. He had lost his DVD, and he got really kind of bent out of shape about it. And we started getting into the conversation like we're having now. I was like, what's the perceived value of something in music if you're giving it away? And I said, well, the music industry's dead. It doesn't matter. Like, it's over. Like, I give it away now. It doesn't matter. I can't sell it. I can barely give it away. And he still continued to get mad about it. I said, man, you don't, you don't realize. Like, you're getting mad about a war that I don't think even exists anymore. It exists for you. But mine, whoosh, gone like the wind. Like nobody, I mean, I, I know some people that are making, you know, living at this, but they're doing it in a different way. Like you were talking about selling your record for $100. People now are giving away 
the digital version of their, their record, but then they're making, hand-making, a guy named Tim Easton, he'll hand-make albums, and those he'll sell for 25 bucks, and the people who really like his music will buy those, and that's a way to monetize it, you know, because we have to, it will, it will continue to exist in terms of commerce, but we just don't know. We're still in that period where we don't know what that looks like anymore. The old paradigm is gone. We don't know what the new paradigm is, you know? <laughs> I'm just I could listen to you for hours. Yeah. Well, that's what we're doing this, man. Let's do a little bit more music here because we've talked a lot. And this show could be about six hours long, by the way, if we kept at this. Uh, and I intend to have many more conversations with you, but this show's got to have an ending point. So you've been nice enough to ask me to play on a song with you, and it's the first time I've played with you in years, and thank you for asking. So tell me about this song. What's this next one gonna be? Um, duct tape. Yeah. And I think that might be the theme of much of our conversation so far is yeah. the limitations and that, um, you know, that there's multiple levels to this. There's a kind of like on a surface, a little bit of a comic, um, tone to it, but there's some sad undertones to this, you know, being in a broken state, which I've definitely have felt and was in that mode when I wrote the song. But, um, you know, making do with resources you have at your disposal. When something breaks, your your strap on your guitar breaks, you strap it back, you know, just get some duct yeah. tape, a roll of duct tape. Yeah. And it has held together parts on my on my car. Yeah. It has I've ripped breast, you know, inner pockets of jackets and used duct tape. You know, duct tape i used it a lot but it was actually not just duct tape you know there's wires and coat yeah. hangers and things like that to make you know field repairs we'll call them and i think you know i'm starting i think that's why we're friends because i've got a lot of that aspect in I myself know. too it comes from my father primarily but i'm sure my <laughs> my mother's side has this as well uh I, I love doing that kind of stuff, like improvising, whether it's musically or in real life, in three dimensions. Like whatever you got to do to get through, man. That's you know, I'm a pragmatic. I'm a pragmatic man when it comes to that. And it's hilarious how so often those temporary fixes end up being permanent fixes. Yeah. Like what is it? The Foster's can. Oh yeah, your... my my battery uh, in my car that I was driving through college, which the car, you know, it was like the Millennium Falcon. It barely worked. It seems like, but I always it was got a Toyota, through. right? It was a Celica, yeah. It was beat, a chicken coop? Beat to hell. It was, my father found it. It was being used as a like shed slash chicken coop in rural Alabama when he found it. He painted it red because he thought I would like that better than the beige that it was, and he was right. And that got me through most of college. But somehow or another, I got a battery that was a different size, and I don't know if the clamp thing didn't work. So I had to get it like wedged in there. So what did I have around? I had a Foster's beer can, those big 25-ounce oil can ones and i had an old reebok so i just jammed those in there he <laughs> kind of propped it up against the side of the fender and that's how it stayed forevermore till the car ended um one other quick aside that i really want to get to this song because i'm looking forward to playing with you is do you remember you opened up for wilco when their first album came out at that ballroom on navy pier it was in the yep. fall and I remember this distinct, this distinct example of this whole theme for our conversation. Your guitar was feeding back because you didn't. I don't know if you didn't have a feedback buster thing to go in the sound hole or what. Yeah. And you're like, well, I think if I if I stuff the guitar full of newspaper, it won't feed back. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, well, don't do that because if you break that little pickup wire, you're going to be up the creek. But you did it anyway. So here you and I are standing on the side of the stage. It's this giant. <laughs> 
<laughs> giant, I forgot about that. Giant ballroom. This is huge. Wilco just sound checked. So you and I are standing there, and up walks Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. The Jeff Tweedy, Uncle Tupelo, the guy, a god in some people's circles. And here are you and I standing there with your guitar like laying on a monitor, like jamming it full of the newspaper <laughs> as much as we, I'm like crumpling it up and you're jamming it in the sound hole. And I remember Tweedy just kind of looking at us and we kind of nodded and smiled and he walked off and we kept at our business. But that's maybe that's the theme for our lives, man. <laughs> Themes for our friendship. We so, had to try it. Got it. I'll be damned if it didn't work. So <laughs> my old friend, Brad Peterson, with the uh, de facto title track to his Ducked tape album the song duct tape happy to be playing along with you my friend let's hear this seems like everyone i know is so far away and i take it real hard seems like everything i've owned you see the broken down or falling apart But duct tape fixes almost anything Held together my clothes and my car Duct tape fixes almost anything But duct tape cannot fix broken heart Seems I always feel so tired I got a bumped and bruised and a worn out soul Else the coffee gets me wired But it costs too much and all my pockets are full Duct tape fixes almost anything Used it as a strap my guitar Duct tape fixes almost anything But duct tape cannot fix broken heart But life it seems somehow Is held together now And about to fall Tempting fate with hangers and some tape and other miscellaneous parts. Maybe things haven't gone my way. I don't leave the house and won't answer my phone. There really isn't much to say. No one wants to hear me bitch and moan. But duct tape fixes almost anything Held together my clothes and my car Yeah, duct tape fixes almost anything But duct tape cannot fix a broken heart yeah, the deep cannot fix a broken heart. Yeah, the deep cannot fix a broken heart. 
It's an honor to play with this guy, my friend Brad Peterson. He's a Los Angeles-based now singer-songwriter, although kind of a newbie out here. You do have a license, though, so you're fully legit in that regard. Welcome to California. Thanks. Contrast for me real quick. Uh, you've been playing in Chicago for so long and based out of there I mean, when you were touring or just making records, and then you were in Minneapolis for a little bit but not too terribly long. Why California and why now? Why not? Um, honestly, I've been playing with the idea for as long as I can remember. Going back to the monkeys, I wanted that beach house okay. with three bandmates. Um, touring with Pete Moss. Always had a great time here with great people. I love the way it smells. And, um, you know, it's a different place. And it's it's interesting. It's like its own country almost. Uh Los Angeles County, I'm talking yeah, about. Definitely. I mean, there's Los Angeles, the city, which I know very little about. You know, my my experience here has been very limited to, you know, my very limited time here. And the reasons I've been here has mainly been for music or something relating to music. But I, there's a lot of Chicago expatriates that I'm friends with, including you. Um, other musicians, uh, filmmakers. I mentioned my friend Peter, who is starting this, for lack of a better term, a visual label. It's self-made digital records, and he's involved in films. He's, like I said, he's got so many things, and it was an opportunity for me to like, kind of rejoin, you know, rejoin my um, efforts with his with what he's trying to do with his label. But when I'm, I told you I'm going to release my EP on his label. Um, but it's also, you know, I talked to you a few times over the last years. Like, I want to come. And you were very welcoming to me. And I got that same kind of feeling from, I don't know why you haven't been here this whole time kind of thing. So also that combined with the fact that I spent the last two winters in Minneapolis. And it just hurt yeah. It was painful. I mean, I don't like to complain, but I actually felt physical pain from how, I mean, I have a lot of metal parts, <laughs> replacement <laughs> aftermarket parts in my body. And I think it might be that and just getting older and it being especially cold in the Midwest and Chicago yeah. the last couple of years that I just needed a respite. Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm, my heart is tethered to some extent to Chicago. Um, I have people I love there. So maybe this is temporary. I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to make the most of it while I'm here. Yeah. Well, welcome, man. It's great to have you here. Thanks. There's, I've got this theory that, uh, like all the, the dreamers and like the people who were, who had enough chutzpah, had enough, um, courage for lack of a better word to like leave their hometown. Cause that's hard. You know, the people we love, they're still people that I love more than my own self back in Chicago and other places too. But there was something else I was following. There was something else that I was, that was calling me, and I'm not sure that it was exactly Los Angeles, but it seems like they kind of tumble west. It's like they're following some star, and let's use our own sun as that metaphor. So they kind of tumble west, and they get to the point where there's no more ocean, and they kind of pile up. And the fact that there's so many of them there, they, like, they all kind of like start to oscillate and they spontaneously combust and they start doing these dreams that they've been chasing their whole lives. And maybe they were doing it in Chicago or New York or Grand Island, Nebraska or Des Moines or Tupelo or wherever it was that they're from. But they get here and there's this rich 
environment, this like loamy, sandy, warm soil that's always got the sun powering us. And art happens, and it keeps happening. And then the commerce people come, and that kind of sucks, but still, it's still happening. And people are here, and they follow their dreams, and they get here. They can't go any farther west. And that's where we are, and that's why we do what we do. At least that's my theory. I like it. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> anyway, how about, uh, we've got enough time for like one more song. Talk to me about this Fleur de Lis EP. You said you mentioned it's coming out in Peter Bauer's label. Um, four tracks, five tracks, pretty typical EP stuff. I think it's going to be five. I was going to do, you know, I try to err on the side of less, you know, especially when I'm playing solo acoustic somewhere. Right. I, f- I feel I'm so limited as a one man I'm limited to just playing guitar and I'm not that great of a guitar player. And, you know, I have my thing with my limitations and singing. I think it gets boring really quick when you don't have all the vast um, combinations of instruments and arrangements and recording techniques. Do you prefer playing with a band? Yes. Okay. I, I, I don't like playing by myself. I don't either. I don't, it's funny because I, I always felt the contrast, I'm interrupting, I'm sorry, but the contrast, I liked playing solo shows when I'm doing a lot of band shows. Then it's different. It's like the ginger in my sushi, or it's a different, it's resetting my brain to kind of reinvent things on my own. But then I always want to go back to that band. And that's why I don't do much music these days, is I don't have a band. I would love to be doing more, but I don't want to do it by myself. I'm bored with myself. I know what I'm going to play. I know what I'm going to sing. I've been doing it a thousand years. As much as I push myself to do something different, it's going to be me doing it. Hearing you do something or hearing the drummer do something or being inspired by that then kicks me, automatically forces me to do something different. And that's what I like about playing in a band. So yes, time for a new band for the both of us, I think. I think so. All right. So, but yeah, I interrupted. You were talking about the Fleur de Lis. It's about five tracks. You're, gonna, you're basically doing them on well, your own I, again. Peter convinced me. I said, I'll, he says, do you have anything else? I go, well, I have sort of this other one. I never finished it. I played drums in my living room. And I did, again, all the instruments. Didn't think it was that strong of a song. And he says, I love it. I love it. You have to put it on there. So it's five. Thanks to Peter. I'm, it's going to be a five-song EP. And I don't think I have to write the rest of an album. Let's just put it out like this. Yeah. And I love Fleur de Lis. It's kind of, I don't know. I've adopted it as my symbol. Yeah. And, you know, and after that, just see what comes next. You know, kick some art out into the world. You know, that's the thing. You don't have to start the entire forest on fire or you don't have to, like, win the entire war. Just start. Do something. Yeah. People ask me, what, what should you do? And I say, I don't, it doesn't matter. Do anything. Do something. Anyway, so this is the track Veil of Tears, Brad Peterson here on Independence Day from his brand new EP called Fleur de Lis. I'm a whispering breeze blown through the trees. I am here but a vapor. So take it all away and be what may. This is not what I came for. Bruises on my knees, praying, Mary, please, would you do me this favor? Nothing left in my possessions, atoned in my confessions. Better sooner than later.
Again, Brad Peterson, my old friend, my continuing friend. So great to see you. So great to have you on the show. So great to see you in California. It's relaxing here, man. But it's closed. No one should come here. California's closed. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. I kid. I love it here. Welcome. Uh, so you've got this brand new EP dropping very early next year, which is right around the corner, just a couple weeks away. Again, happy holidays to everybody, whatever, uh, Festivus or Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever it is. Peace on earth, man. That's what I say. And goodwill. And goodwill toward everybody. Dogs, too. Um, But then you've also got, you know, right in time for the holidays, we were talking as we were setting up, you've got a Christmas song, which is the web exclusive. People should drop by indepthday.com to check that out. Um, But you've got other Christmas songs, too. This is news to me. You're going to put out an EP. It's going to be digitally available on your website, bradpeterson.com. Are these, like, traditional songs? Are they all original songs? There's so many ways to go about a Christmas album. You know, um... I hope I don't digress too much, but I I have this whole story on how I came to know Sufjan Stevens, mm-hmm. his music. And I I was at Subterranean. He played for five. I mean, that's not the whole story. I, I ended up by chance seeing him at the Subterranean with five audience members. Three of those audience members were me and two friends that I dragged goes you gotta check this guy out and you know talking to him at that show i said do you have anything else and he goes well i've been sort of making these christmas songs and giving them do you do you want to buy one and i've i have this my third year and i said yeah i want everything i want to buy everything so i bought everything and they were just burnt on his computer with a little snowflake sticker and they were beautiful and i was like this is wonderful I I need to 
I need to do this. So I started for my stocking stuff or, you know, gifts to my friends. I would record a song and give it to them. That's my Christmas present. Like, my, instead of a Christmas card, it was my musical Christmas card. And I did it for, I think, five years in okay. a row. So now there's, like, the fifth song, the last being this one called Christmas With You. But they're all original, and they're a combination what Christmas is to me um, on a spiritual level. That So there's sort of, like, this spiritual aspect to some of them, and then there's sort of a lighthearted aspect to some of them. Yeah. And I think this song, Christmas With You, is kind of like sort of the moody, emotional side of it. This, okay. So there's there's a little something for everybody in there. So there's like this, you know, the commercial, funny Christmas Santa yeah, yeah. side song. This one's kind of like a... a a, a sad Christmas song. Okay. Well, there is sad. The best Christmas songs have that kind of sadness to yeah. them. You know, uh, uh, we'll have to muddle through somehow. I've always loved that one line. Well, I, I, my favorite. It's have yourself a merry little Christmas, right? Oh, I was thinking um, the Pogues, Fairy okay. Tale of New York. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, I mean, it was Christmas Eve in the drunk tank. Yeah. I love that. That's the best opening Christmas line of anything. Yeah, and I wish people would, you know, I don't know, it's my little soapbox. I wish people would maintain half of the, the peace on earth ethos for the rest of the year. Like, it doesn't, you don't have to be nice to each other just on Christmas. We should always want to have peace on earth. We should always do this. Carry that Christmas thing around with you all year round. And here's something, uh, we're about out of time, but I have one last question for you, which is something that's always loomed very large in your music and then in mine too, which is this idea of nostalgia. Like, there's so much about your music that's looking back at childhood or looking at the sepia tone world that we all kind of feel like we came from popsicles and lawnmowers and stars and shooting stars and loam. And what is it for you about looking back? Is it, is it like therapy for you to look back at those things and write about them? Like why write about that stuff so much? It's not therapy. In fact, it, it's, I think it's probably harmful if anything. Okay. Um, I recently learned a new word and it's, it's a, probably an old word, but it's now been adopted by the American English lexicon. And the word is sadage. It's it's a it's a Portuguese word, um, kind of specific to Brazil, and it's also a word that describes a type of music. But um, sadage does not have a direct tr translating, you know, word. In English, you have to describe what it means. And it's this sort of longing for something missed, uh, w wistful, with a, with a pinch of melancholy, mm -hmm. because it's no longer there and you miss it, you yearn for it. And I think it's been in my nature, and that's that's definitely what this song is. It's kind of like... I. I now feel sad at Christmas time because I kind of like have this, you know, idyllic, you know, idyllic memory of being six. Yeah. And the family being together and being with everybody I loved and everything being perfect. And to, to me, it's not sepia tone. It's almost technicolor. Okay. It's 
the colors of my dreams are brighter than yeah, the yeah, colors yeah. in real life. And so it's, my memory is very idyllic and, um, you know, there's, there's a little sadness cause you long for people missed. Yeah. I get it. And that's, that plays right into the holiday. It plays in a lot of people feel that way at the holidays. <laughs> Suicide rates go up. I shouldn't be laughing when I say that, but, uh, it's true. It's in every, look at that, almost, almost every Christmas movie has that, like the Miracle on 34th Street. It's based on tragedy. Look at uh, uh, the George Bailey one. It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, the guy <laughs> ceases to exist. It's very, very dark. There's that moment where Jimmy Stewart comes right up to the camera and he breaks that fourth wall. Like he looks off to the side and he turns his head and he faces the camera and he's terrified. You know, he's unshaven, he's got snow and he's sweating and his hair's all messed up. And it's like, it's really scary if you think about what's going on at that point in the movie. There's a lot of sadness. I call that Thursday. <laughs> I'm going to laugh that one off, man. I'm glad we're smiling about these things, man. So let's let's wrap this up. It's it's such a wonderful experience to like have you close to my world again. I hope I get to see you more than I've, I've been seeing you. Let's make um, a band. Tell me, let's make a band. Tell me, uh, lastly, what, now that you're here in LA, like what, I mean, you don't have to have elaborate plans, but do you have some kind of loose plan about what you want to do now that you're here other than soak up sunshine? Well, I want to stay healthy. Firstly, I don't want to, um, I don't want to make too too many solid plans, and I feel feel like I'm talking to my mom now. I I'm gonna see what, what develops over the the winter and with this next record. Yeah, and maybe I'll form a band, and yeah. maybe you know it's interesting because I've been picking up these little jobs here and there. Yesterday I did sound for an independent film, and uh, I had a blast, and ended up actually working the B camera for part of it. Yeah. You know, I helped somebody out who was in a pinch and I was originally supposed to just do sound, but you know, they were kind of short staffed and needed my assistance in other areas. So yeah, I was running the camera. (laughs) Yeah. Jump in, man. That's what this is all about. This is all about. So Brad, thank you for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. Happy holidays to you and yours. Thanks. So thank you to Brad Peterson, also to the Independence Day staff, Valentina Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The reliable Tony Tonelok Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. Please check them out and buy their music too. For Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. Peace on Earth. If you do anything, please be good to one another.